When I first started playing a banjo, I had figured I had to learn all. Now, after 27 years of trying to pick a five-string banjo, I realized the best banjo music I know uses mostly single strings and sometimes just one chord. Like Frank Prophet plays Tom Dooley. Peter, how did you find the banjo? My father, in 1936, found me interested in making music in the local jazz band with a tenor banjo. If any of you ever heard Duke Ellington's record of Mood Indigo, you hear that clunk, 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 clunk. fancy rhythms, just a very basic beat. This was recorded in the 1920s. Tenor banjos went out when electrified guitars came in. You didn't need that volume of sound anymore. And I had resisted being a musician. My mother was a violin teacher. Uh, she'd given miniature fiddles to my two older brothers, but they rebelled. And my, when I came along, my father quite purposely said, oh, let Peter enjoy himself. And he didn't object when I refused to learn how to read music. My mother said, don't you want to be able to read the songs out of the songbook there? I said, no, I can hear somebody sing it and imitate them. I'll learn by ear. Well, she left musical instruments all around the house, piano, organ, a marimba, a squeeze box, a penny whistle. And by the age of six, I knew what a minor chord was and a major chord and I could play along, bang out a tune on a piano. I remember my father used to have me play the melody with one finger, just the melody, and he would improvise all over the piano. I would play it on the high notes of the piano, and he would just improvise down below. That was wonderful and exciting, because my father was an excellent pianist. I remember he and my stepmother once playing Sacre du Printemps, while somebody else turned the pages if you imagine the large pages, about 20 inches or two feet high, with all the instruments of the symphony orchestra there, all the first violins, the second violins, the violas, the cellos, the string basses, the first trumpets, the second trumpets, the trombones, the horns, the timpani, and so on, the bassoons, and they could look at it and know how it was supposed to sound. That's what you go to music school to learn. My father took the upper part of the piano, and my, my stepmother took the load, and there they were just playing the whole thing through, some 15 minutes worth. Now, I guess it isn't quite that long, but it's more than three or four minutes. Pete, let me finish the story about the banjo. So you were playing the tenor banjo. How'd you get to the five-string Oh, banjo? well, I, my mother gave me a ukulele at age eight, and I found myself able to accompany any song I heard on a recording or the radio within a 
a minute or so because I had an ear that told me, hey, that chord doesn't sound right. And I've been figuring out the chord with my fingers and pretty soon I, I had the chord all by ear. So I was a very good ear musician by the time I was a teenager. Oh, I can tell you pop songs of the year 1927, 28. I'm just a sentimental gentleman from Georgia, Georgia. Gentle to the ladies all the time. So gentle to the ladies. And when it comes to loving, he's a real professor, a PhD. Yes, sir. Just a Mason Dixon Valentine. Valentine, Valentine. Go oh, see those Georgia peaches hanging around him now. What that baby teaches, nobody else knows how. The, I'm just a sentimental gentleman from Georgia. <laughs> They were silly songs, but they were fun. And I had to admire the cleverness of the rhymes, where there was Ain't She Sweet walking down the street, tell you very confidentially, Ain't She Sweet. And I still think that the composer of Sweet Georgia Brown was one of the greatest composers of the 20th century. Analyze the melody, analyze the harmonies. That guy was a genius. I think it was a guy, not a woman. Sweet Georgia Brown, it still played. I play Bye Bye Blues, the 1926 hit of Irving Berlin's. I play it still on my five-string banjo, and I get audiences singing with me. So you went from the ukulele to the banjo. And then you had the tenor banjo. I, I, played it, I played tenor banjo in the school jazz band. I wanted to be along with my peers. And my father takes me down, my father and my stepmother, and I think the two little babies, Mike and Peggy, Peggy was really very young. We drove down. I remember staying in motels. In those days, uh, motels were not as fancy as they are now. They were separate little buildings with a double bed in them, and each little building didn't have a bathroom and a toilet. Tourist cabins, they were called, and the word motel was just coming in, short for motor hotel. Anyway, my father and I did a lot of hiking in when he took me down to Asheville, I suddenly realized what an extraordinary thing the five-string banjo was. It didn't just play in chords, plunk, 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 plunk. It didn't play many fancy chords at all. It played single notes in fascinating rhythmic patterns. And I couldn't figure it out. It went so fast. It was like tap dancing. And uh, there was a country lawyer down there, Bascom Lamar Lunsford, and he put on an annual mountain dance festival. He had a big stage set up on the grounds of the local baseball field, which seated a couple thousand people or more. And he had one microphone on stage right, another microphone on stage left. And while one string band was playing on the stage right, he'd be setting up the band on the stage left in the dark. The spotlight would be on the right, but in the shadows, he'd get about, now you're the fiddler, make sure you're this distance from the microphone, not too close, not too far. Now you're the guitarist, you stand here, and you're the banjo picker, you stand here. Now 
you know what key you're in, you're in tune, right? And you know what you're going to start. The moment the spotlight hits you, you start playing. Well, now the band on the stage right finally gets to the end of their number, and Lunsford would walk into the spotlight. Folks, give them a hand. They're the bog trotters. And uh, the audience would applaud them. And now Lunsford would point over to stage left. Now, welcome the Coon Holler Gang. <laughs> and the spotlights would switch over from stage right to stage left, and they'd start playing. No delay, and he kept a fast-moving show going. Do you remember the first time you actually heard a banjo? I guess I knew that tenor banjos existed because... Well, I mean the five-string, I'm sorry. Uh, the five-string banjo. Well, that was when I first heard a five-string. Oh, no! Ha, ha! I forgot. Way back in the 1920s, my father had played a record of Doc Boggs. No, maybe it was 1931. 31. Played me a record of Doc Boggs playing the song Pretty Polly. And he said, Peter, where do you think this came from? Well, I could not understand Doc Boggs' southern accent. I say it comes from China, as far as I know. This kind of nasal voice he was singing in, it was like nothing I'd ever heard before. Well, I used to be a rambler, I stayed around in town. I used to be a rambler, I stayed around in town. I courted pretty Paul, it's such beauty, never been found. Father laughed, says, no, this is a Kentucky mountain banjo picker. Pretty Polly, pretty Polly, oh, yonder she stands. Pretty Polly, pretty Polly, oh, yonder she stands. With rings on her fingers, the lady white hands. So he was, early country records were educating my father. Were you electrified when you heard the five-string banjo? Well, it was interesting, but it was so different. I didn't imagine that I would ever want to sing something like that. Hmm. Now, in Asheville, they had people I could understand better. I remember a woman in her 50s, Aunt Samantha, they called her, Samantha Bumgarner. She came from Gatlinburg, Tennessee, across the state line a few miles west of Asheville, and she sang in a rocking chair. And she go plunkety plunk plunk way in the banjo in her lap. She decorated her banjo with beautiful butterflies all over the head of the banjo. The banjo was very colorful. I don't know how she did it, whether with oil paint or watercolor paint or crayons, whatever it was. But she she had a beautiful red, yellow, pink, purple, green, blue, black with orange stripes, <laughs> butterflies all over her banjo. And there she was, kind of rocking a little bit and having a, so much fun while she was singing. Keep in mind that sometimes these old ballads were hilarious. They weren't all tragic ballads. 
like the old Irish ballad about the man who wanted to be first in everything. And uh, when it finally came to their honor, he and a gang were drowned. And he said, I want to be first to the bottom. <laughs> Pete, does it take a really tough time to produce great music? I think so, or at least a realization of how tough the time is. Just like some great music came out of the 60s, uh, Bob Dylan's songs, so on. Okay, now I don't want to annoy you, but I'm going to ask you a question. And this, of course, is one of the most famous stories in contemporary music, yeah. and that is... What happened when Dylan came out? There's a story that goes around that you pulled the plug on his electrified instrumentation. I'll tell you exactly what happened. I wasn't enthusiastic, never have been enthusiastic about electric music. I'm interested in it. I'm more enthusiastic about steel drums. I'm more enthusiastic about ethnic music of all sorts. To something about electricity which take some of the humanity out of the music, I tend to think. On the other hand, I know that a lot of good people, including my grandson, think I'm wacky. So if there's a sound you can get out of electric, you cannot get out of anything else. Whether it's an electric bass, or an electric guitar, or a whole batch of guitars, or keyboards. And I must say, we had some wonderful electric music at Newport. We'd had Howling Wolf there, Muddy Waters, and a lot of other, especially black musicians, but some white musicians that used electricity. However, when Bob started singing the, a great song called Maggie's Farm, you couldn't understand a word. They were trying to get some special effect and they weren't able to get it. All I knew is that I was furious. All you got was, ah, 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 ah. you couldn't understand a single word. And I ran over to the man in charge of the monitors or the sound and said, fix up the sound so you can understand his words. And they hollered back. He said, no, this is the way they want it. Bob was working with Al Grossman and Peter Paul and Mary and others, and they were eager to show new folk music. And I think they're right. It's very possible that if there's a human race here 500 years from now, they say in the 20th century, rock and roll was the new folk music, if the term is used at all. But obviously the old tradition of folk music is music of the peasant class, ancient and anonymous, had gradually changed. Old man Lomax started it by recording cowboys and lumberjacks. And then Woody Guthrie comes to town and they call him a folk musician. And people like me start imitating Woody. Then along comes Bob Dylan and Phil Oakes that people don't know what to call them, so they call them folk singers too. And Buffy St. Marie, all of them, including Malvina Reynolds, she said, I'm not a folk singer. 
Bob Dylan says, I'm not a folk singer. But journalism had its way. You've got to find a name for something. And this is very common in journalism, as you know. You find a nice name for it, and then you can either promote it or you can kill it. Do you ever hear of the old saying, give a dog a bad name and kill it? And this is what journalism tried to do and succeeded in many ways with such things as the word liberal or the word communist. But there were some five more years of Newport. In fact, the last year of Newport Folk Festival, we stopped by with the sloop Clearwater, which had just sailed down from Maine, and we put it into a dock at Newport, and hundreds of people came down to see it. I'm gonna lay down my sword and shield Down by the riverside The whole crew were great singers. Don McLean was on the crew, Gordon Bach was on the crew. I'm ashamed to say we were all men, except for the cook. Her husband, Fred Starner, is a songwriter, and Louis Killen, the shanty singer from Newcastle-on-Tyne in northwest England, and let me think, oh, Jimmy Collier. He was one of Dr. Martin Luther King's assistants, and Frederick Douglass Kirkpatrick, a former football player in Grambling College, the black college in Louisiana, who was also one of Dr. King's assistants. And the black songwriter, Len Chandler, who lives on the West Coast, very prolific man, and wrote some songs which will go down in history. My mama said not to put beans in my ears, beans in my ears, beans in my ears. My mama said not to put beans in my ears. Beans in my ears Now why should I want to put Beans in my ears Beans in my ears Beans in my ears Now why should I want to put Beans in my ears Beans in my ears You can't hear your teacher With beans in your ears Beans in your ears Beans in your ears, you can't hear your teacher with beans in your ears, beans in your ears. Hey, maybe, maybe it's, it's fun, fun to put beans in our ears, beans in our ears, beans in our ears. That's the fourth verse. You know, in summer camp, I learned that children like a song with repetition mm. that has a good sense of humor, like found a peanut, found a peanut can go on for eight minutes, this simple, ridiculous story. So the fifth verse, hey, mama, look at me. I got beans in my ears, beans in my ears, beans in my ears. And the seventh verse, oh, that's nice, son. Just don't put those beans in your ears, beans in your ears. That's nice, son. Just don't put those beans in your ears, beans in your ears. And the final last verse, 
I think that all grown-ups have beans in their ears. Beans in their ears. Beans in their ears. I think that all grown-ups have beans in their ears. Beans in their ears. This will go down in history as a great children's song. Anyway, this was the last year of Newport because there was a riot and the police in Newport were asking $50,000 or so to protect the festival. And George Whedon wisely refused and opened up the great New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. They're back in Newport, but it's not quite the same as it used to be. But anyway, I was going to say that when we had all those eight Clearwater singers on stage, a policeman in the wing says, you got a million-dollar gang here, where'd you get them? And I suddenly realized that I knew a lot of absolute wonderful musicians, none of whom sold on the top 40, and reinforce my own lifelong contempt for the, for the pop world. I often quote Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde says, fashion is a form of ugliness so bad it has to be changed every few months. That's the pop world, and I can't say it without a sneer on my lips. One last question about, if I can, go back, way back to the Depression. A lot of music came out of that Depression. Great music did come out of the 30s, almost as a reaction, though. Some of the songs were silly. Wrap your troubles in dreams and dream your troubles away. What price happiness, what price happiness, who can truthfully say? But for every share, with tears we pay. Love is happiness, I've had happiness. Ah, but it ended one day. Now I look at life a different way. When skies are cloudy and gray, they're only gray for a day. So wrap your troubles in dreams. And dream your troubles away. That was a Bing Crosby hit around 1932 or 33. However, a songwriter, a lyricist named Yip Harburg, also wrote a song. Once I built a tower to the sun, bricks, rivets, and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Brother, can you spare a dime? Once in khaki suits, gee, we looked swell, full of that Yankee doodle-dum. Half a million boots went slogging through hell, and I was the kid with a drum. Say, don't you remember, they called me Al. It was Al all the time. Say, don't you remember... I'm your pal, buddy, can you spare a dime? One of the world's great songs about unemployment. And Yip, of course, also is the man who put the rainbow in Wizard of Oz. That's the title of the biography of him, which his son wrote. Great story, I've told it many times. And uh, at the big peace demonstration in uh, New York, February 15th last year, I had the whole crowd singing Over the Rainbow. Way up high. There's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. 
the rainbow. One reason I do it is because Yip Harburg, the uh, lyricist, knew very much the significance of the rainbow in politics. It means diversity. It means bring all the people together, the respectable ones and the unrespectable ones, the lowest of the low, as ones who have gotten up a little higher and are trying to get still higher, but they're all in the rainbow. There's two more lines, but I found I had to change two words. Oh, the folk process, you know. If I'd been there when 13-year-old Dorothy was singing this, I would have said, Dorothy, you ask a question, why can't I? I'll tell you why you can't. Because you only ask for yourself. You've got to ask for everybody. We've all got to ask for everybody, because either we're all going to make it over that <coughs> rainbow or nobody's going to make it. So say, if plucky little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow, why can't you and I? Here we go. If plucky little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow, Interesting. I yeah. must tell you, the, there's so many good stories going on now that I am more optimistic about the world and my country now than ever in my life. When the atom bomb fell, it, my gosh, it's 58 years ago it now. Is. It sunk through my thick skull what it really meant. I felt sure sooner or later, maybe within a few years, at most within a few decades, some fool would be dropping them and there would go the whole world. If it weren't, we weren't killed by a bomb, we'd be poisoned by the fallout. Mommy, mommy, come and look and see what I have found A little way away from here while digging in the ground Come away, Melinda, come in and close the door It's nothing but a picture book they had before the war but it's amazing that as a humankind, we didn't somehow collectively permit ourselves to do that. Well, this is interesting. There are sparks of logic, even in all sorts of unexpected places. Here's another example. Good stories are happening all over, and I have been taught lessons by my country that I wouldn't have believed possible when I was a young radical. Now, maybe I'm just growing conservative, as most people do when they get into their 80s, but Patagonia is a famous clothing concern. It's owned by one family. And some members of the family said, you know, if we sold stock in this company, we could make a lot more money than we could right now. This company could grow. It might become part of some larger corporation, but we'd get a good many million dollars right now. The family eventually voted down this idea. They said, you know, every year we're able to give away like $14 million to good causes here and good causes there. For all I know, WAMC has gotten some contributions at some time. <laughs> but there are family-owned businesses all over the country which have decided not to go public, not to become too big, and they give away, give away money. Furthermore, there are more widows than ever 
who give away money. It's often the man who is mainly enjoys the idea of getting richer and bigger. That's what life is all about as far as I'm concerned, get richer and bigger. The widow finds herself with a huge amount and said, our kids don't need all this. I'll give them enough, but not too much. And I'll give the rest away. Where? Well, it might be to a school or a hospital. Oh, I got a letter from this wonderful little idea. I think I'll give money to them. It's an interesting review in last Sunday's book review about a book on philanthropy. And the person writing the review couldn't understand why should anybody want to give things away? And he didn't know what most religious leaders have it's, it's It's fun to be generous. And in the long run, it's the saving of the world. Well, I, I say that it's a toss-up. If there's a human race still here, if we don't wipe each other off the face of the earth, it's going to take miracles. And I say miracles do happen, little miracles and big miracles. And here's one of them. In 1960, in the city of Niagara Falls, there was a man who had a little putt-putt motorboat, and he invited a seven-year-old boy and his older sister, age 17, to come out for a spin. Their parents gave their permission. It was a long way from the falls, miles away from Niagara Falls. Father said, you have life jackets. Oh, yes, I got a whole batch of them. So off they went. Well, something went wrong with the motor. They think it was a shear pin broke or something. And the man was just unable to fix it. He was trying to fix it. He was down on his hands and knees trying to fix it. And he straightened up to realize that they were going to go over the falls. Now, there's a Coast Guard station on George Island, George's Island, which is supposed to stop pleasure boats from getting too near the falls. But somebody wasn't watching. And uh, the man told the 17-year-old girl to swim for it. She might make it. Goat Island is halfway between the Canadian Falls, the Big Falls, and the small American Falls. And the man strapped two life jackets on the boy, the seven-year-old boy. Well, people were watching from the shore, horrified to see a boat go over the edge. They say it turned over just before it got to the edge, but a man and a boy both went over. There was another man watching. Here's how he got there. He was a black policeman in Union City, New Jersey, just across from Manhattan. And one day he said, honey, let's visit Niagara Falls. She said, what made you think of that? He said, I don't know. It just came to me all of a sudden. And she said, well, it's a nice idea. Let's see if there's a a date. And they fixed a weekend and they drove up, parked the car and knocked at a hotel door, but they were turned down. Their skin wasn't the right color. However, a man across the street in a more expensive hotel saw what was happening. He says, come over, we have a room for you. And he got them a good room at a reasonable price, cheaper than they'd expected. They changed the clothes, walked out, and walked over to Goat Island as a bridge, footbridge, upstream of the American Falls. And they were sitting in a bench. They sat down a bench, and the white couple at the other end of the bench got up and moved away. But they were used to things like that. But with his policeman's training, he was looking out over, and he suddenly, there's somebody swimming in that river. And he ran to the edge of Goat Island where they have a railing. The girl was holding onto a rock only 20 feet from the edge of the falls, but she didn't have strength enough to go the last five feet. And holding onto the railing with one hand, he leaned out and got three fingers. But he wasn't able to haul her back. He hollered and hollered. Uh, His name was John Hayes. And finally, another man from New Jersey, Mr. Quattrochi, 
from the Delaware side of New Jersey, heard him holler, and he ran up, holding on to the railing. He grabbed with his other other hand her other two, other her other, and the two men now hauled her to safety. The first words out of her mouth was, my brother, my brother, and all they could say was, pray for him, lady. They'd seen the boat and these two people go over. About 30 seconds later, he said, John Hay, I went and interviewed him once. It seemed like just 30 seconds later, I heard somebody holler, hey, the maid of the mist is picking up a small boy out of the water. On deck, he says, boy, that's noisy. You could get killed doing that. He didn't know he was the only person in history to go over Niagara Falls with nothing but two life jackets on. The man who took him out for a ride, can't remember his name. I can't remember anybody's name these days. His body was found smashed five miles south downstream. The boat was smashed to splinters. Well, miracles happen. I read this in first in the newspaper, then I found out where John Hayes lived and went out to New Jersey. He's retired now. I'm sure he thinks that God told him that he should be up in Niagara Falls then. Whatever it is, it was a miracle. And I'm not willing to say it wasn't God told him to do that, because people do predict things sometimes in the future. Some are better at it than others. The family says this about Toshi. Toshi can find things that nobody else can find. And it's weird. I said, how do you find it? He said, well, I think of it. I just think of it and find my feet walking in one direction. I just let them go. And she'll find a key or a piece of paper that somebody's lost. <laughs> so I'm perfectly willing to agree there's an occult world which the usual scientist doesn't know much about. Although some scientists are now looking into it. Do you know the book by Thomas Hartman? on the present world situation. And he claims that tests have been made showing that, I'll say, extrasensory messages can be spread. And prayer does help people survive. If you have a whole lot of people holding good thoughts for somebody, that somebody has a better chance of living. He claims that scientific tests have been made. You have a better chance of living if you've got a batch of your friends all saying, don't let so-and-so die. What do you think? I'm willing to go along with him if it's a scientific test. <laughs> he claims also, now this is most fascinating, that these occult extrasensory messages, which my grandmother would not have agreed to, she was an agnostic, a defiant agnostic, go faster than the speed of light. You know, the speed of light can go around the Earth seven times in one second. Light can go to the moon and back in a second and a half. Uh, light comes from the sun in about eight minutes. It takes a whole year for light to get to here from Sirius, the bright star near Orion. Now that the fall is coming, you'll see Orion coming up. And right after Orion comes up comes the dog star, Sirius. It's a bluish star, about the same size as our sun, but it takes a year for the light to get here. And it takes 1,500 years for light from the three stars in Orion's belt to get here. They're very big. They're about 35,000 times the mass of our sun. reason I can quote all this, I had an older brother. He died last year at age 90, who was an astronomer radar astronomer. He helped build a big telescope in Puerto Rico that can see galaxies five billion light years away. Well, according to Thomas Hartman's book, scientific proof has been made that occult messages travel instantaneously. They don't travel as slow as the speed of light. Now, how they do this, I don't know. Now, you have to laugh. There was a much respected physicist in England, Fred Hoyle, who said, how do we know that life 
isn't floating out in space in microscopic quantities, and it's so cold that it's not expanding, it's just frozen. But when it lands on a warm planet with water on it, then it starts multiplying. And now scientists wonder, how can we either prove or disprove this idea? Then you might consider what Samuel Beckett's father says, perhaps life is a disease of matter. And we know a lot of people have said, perhaps civilization is a disease of life. Certainly technological society may be a disease of life. And I've written a few stories telling how the world is saved by finding out that on Mars, there were several technological societies. The early ones were rectangular and didn't, the early ones didn't last very long. But there was a hexagonal society, and we call them the hexagons when we discover them, that lasted for millions of years because they learned from the previous technological societies that technological societies tend to self-destruct. And so they became very, very conservative. Nothing was manufactured until there was complete Mars-wide consensus that it was a good thing to do. And likewise, nothing was invented or even researched. And you might consider this. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams corresponded for 13 years before they died, and they became very pessimistic. How can you have prosperity without commerce? How can you have commerce without luxury? How can you have luxury without corruption? How can you have corruption without the end of the Republic? That's worth considering now in the year 2003, when elections have become quite different from what they used to be. Here's our problem now. How can one have a technological society without research? How can you have research without researching dangerous areas? How can you research dangerous areas without discovering dangerous things? How can you discover dangerous things without this dangerous information falling into the hands of insane, power-hungry people like Hitler? So nobody knows what the future is going to be except every one of us is involved in this. And at the end of my book, I'll put a little story which I tell whoever interviews me, so you've probably heard it before. Imagine a big seesaw, and one end of the seesaw is on the ground because it's got a basket half full of rocks. The other end of the seesaw is up in the air because it's got a basket one quarter full of sand. And some of us got teaspoons, and we're trying to put sand in it. And a lot of people are kind of laughing at us. Don't you see it's leaking out as fast as you're putting it in? You got to do something big. All we can say is, well, we're getting more teaspoons every year. We think that one of these years, you'll see that basket of sand not just half full, but three quarters full. And then that whole seesaw will go zoop in the other direction. And the basket of rocks will go up and the basket of sand will go down. And all around the world they say, gee, how did it happen so quickly? Us and all our little teaspoons. And that's the hope I try and give people everywhere I go. I got a book out, One Grain of Sand. It's a lullaby I made up for my youngest daughter. A wonderful artist did pictures for it. I can give you a copy. They sent me 40 copies of the book, and I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> you know, you're so right. The thought of what if, what if, what if, what if. What if Hitler had used many of the same scientists who invented our space program, and a year before... We set off the A-bomb. He had set off the A-bomb around the world. What if? Well, he probably would have been murdered by his own people. It's very difficult to prevent assassination, really, if you really want to assassinate. 
you organize it. And you can assassinate a lot of people as this screwball Osama did. I wish Osama would live long enough to realize what a screwball thing he did and what a screwball way of thinking he's got now. The solution for Osama is not to capture him and execute him. It's to teach him. And it might take a year, might take 10 years, it might take a lot of very unusual things. But people have changed their mind in prison, you know, and remade their lives. Who knows? He's the son of a very rich man. I guess you know his father was one of the richest people in Saudi Arabia and had about 400 children. Osama's just one of them. Ah, screwy. I think that the big revolution will have to take place if the human race is to survive. And that revolution is to realize that we all, and I mean all of us, have to start listening to the great religious leaders of the past. Whether it was Jesus or Muhammad or Buddha or Moses, all of them made mistakes, but all of them had insights and we can learn from them all. I think we should all learn from great political leaders and there have been some wonderful ones like Lincoln. So we can learn from great politicians, the compromises they make, we all compromise. Hey, my sister got a wonderful line, Peggy Seeger, you can't live without compromising. You can't stay married. You can't raise a family without compromising. But there's a difference between compromising and selling out. Isn't that did, a great... Did she tell you where to draw the line? <laughs> no, that's for everybody to find. Peter Alsop, who is, has a degree in psychology and is a great songwriter in California, has a beautiful children's song. His child is on the floor trying to draw a picture. He said, Daddy, can you help me draw the line? And he's thinking to himself, how do I know where to draw the line? Every single one of us has to make that decision probably almost every week of their life somewhere. <laughs> you know, I have a new tape I can give you. It's not all my favorites, but they had other people singing my songs. Two CDs, a double CD. Is it brand new? Called Seeds. Oh, uh, the Parable of the Sower has long been a favorite of mine, and... Jim Musselman, who used to be one of Nader's Raiders, runs a nice little record company called Apple Seeds, and he put out first a double CD of my song sung by other people. Yes, I've, I have, that I have. And a second CD didn't sell so one well because it came out right after 9-11, but the third, it's a double CD record, and he found a whole batch of songs in them used the word seeds somewhere in it. A song called Quite Early Morning has it. Do you yes, know the song, no, Quite sure, Early sure, Morning? Sure, sure. I'm proud. Uh, my grandson has tried to sing in this. He sings it very he, slow. I never dreamed of singing it so slow. But he says he can get the whole audience singing along. Did you write it, Pete? Yeah, I wrote it about oh, I, I know, I know the song very well. I love it. If we could heed these early warnings, the time, the time is now is quite early now. morning. Quite early morning. If we could heed these early warnings, the time is now, quite early morning. Anyway, the whole name of the CD is Seeds, and in there I make a song out of the parable of the sower, which is one of Jesus' most famous parables. Describes the sower in the field, scattering the seeds, and some seeds fall in the pathway. Well, they get tramped on. They don't sprout. Some fall on rocks, 
they don't sprout either. But some but seeds some fall seeds on fallow ground. Fall on fallow ground. They grow and multiply a thousandfold. The music is from an African song, and I found out it's quite well known in Guinea, West Africa, and it's in my book. But nobody but me, hardly, ever sung it. But I told Jim, see if you can get somebody to sing this song, and he got a wonderful woman's chorus to put it together. He uses a little, you know how records are made, I can't, I don't dig it, the way records are made these days. You record somebody singing, then you record somebody playing an instrument, then you record somebody playing another instrument, and then you listen to it and said, I guess a drum would be helpful, and you add some, some of that. And then how about some other voices on <laughs> That's how the record is made. But anyway, I'm now promoting a record. like never. I've never promoted one this of my record. records. I'm now sending this record of Sower of Seeds because I'd be proud if anybody could do as good as they do on this record, and they might even do better. They might do better. Now you are like a village. Sing it like this. Try it. Keep it up. Don't stop. Tomorrow we scatter like seeds. Tomorrow we are seeds. Jim Musselman. It's a lovely story. He's a guy that got these explosive things put in the dashboard. And Nader says, don't come to me asking how to do it. I'm paying you a salary and you do it. And somewhere along the line, he got hold of a Xerox copy of a memo which Lee Iacocca had sent out. It says, don't bother me about airbags and safety. My job is to make a profit for Chrysler. <laughs> Pete, we talked about Johnny Cash and I wrote a column for the Berkshire Eagle quoting you. I told Toshi, because of his putting you on the air during the end of the blacklist. Well, I once was told 50, 60 years ago when I was singing in a bar, Woody Guthrie taught me how to sing in bars. He said, Pete, put your banjo on your back, go and buy a nickel beer and sip it as slow as you can. Sooner or later, somebody's going to say, kid, can you play that thing? And don't be too eager, say maybe a little, keep on sipping your beer. Sooner or later, somebody will say, kid, I got a quarter for you if you pick us a tune. Now you unlimber your banjo and pick him your best song. So I made my way. I sung my way out to Montana and down to Florida. I never went hungry. As long as there was a bar, I could sing a few well-known songs like, Makes no difference now what kind of life fate hands me. It was a Gene Autry hit. Mm -hmm. I learned it. And a yodeling song way out there. I love that. Anyway... In a bar, a man says to me, you know why I like Jimmy Rogers? Because everything he sang is true. There was a working man speaking about another working man. Truth is the important thing. And that's what I think millions of working people felt when they listened to Johnny Cash. I love Johnny Cash because everything he sings is true, whether it's I Walk the Lion or the boy whose name is Sue, whatever it is, 
He was a very honest person. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds. Because you're mine, I walk the line. I find myself alone when each day's through Yes, I'll admit that I'm a fool for you Because you're mine, I walk the line And he fought with his producers to get me on his show down in Nashville. I'm sure they said, Seeger's called a communist, you're going to get in trouble if you have him on. But he insisted and he and I both wanted me to sing a song about Osceola. Yes, you told us that. The Indian chief. A friend of mine in Florida, great songwriter, Will McLean. And he wrote a song about Osceola. And the last verse says, go to the Everglades and don't have anything to do with those people. Those people, the one that did not respect a flag of truce, the flag of white. I shall not live among such evil men sign of truce, this flag of white, and honor not their given sacred word, my name will be the light. Because Osceola was called out for a conference under a flag of truce, and promptly was surrounded and captured, and put in jail, and... Friends of his bribed the jail guards and said, we, we bribed, you can escape. He said, no, I'm not going to escape. I will stay and I will die and my name will go down as one that was killed unjustly because they lied. My spirit walks with those of you died and those of you always shall remain upon this bloodstained blessed flower St. Augustine, Chief Osceola And lying is a very important thing. You talked before about your compromise, but Johnny Cash, when it came time to play the song, which you actually did, that you agreed with, that they cut out the last yeah. verse. <laughs> yeah, when the tape got played on, on the air, it was a television show, the last verse was cut out, which made a big point about don't trust these people. Johnny Cash was part Cherokee, you know, yes. and he was very proud of it. He had big books. He knew a lot about Native American history. I was surprised. And uh, whenever we met again, last time I saw him was at the Kennedy Center, where I said a few words before he got an award there. I could see he was ill, but he was in there pitching, in there fighting. He wasn't giving up. But I remember him also when he was full of energy. He went out on the stage of Newport and gave a great leap into the air and landed wham on the floor and started playing his guitar. Well, my daddy left home when I was three and he didn't leave much to Ma and me, just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. 
Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke And it got a lot of laughs from lots of folks Seems I had to fight my whole life through Some gal would giggle and I'd get red And some guy'd laugh and I'd bust his head I'll tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue Well, I knew that snake was my own sweet dad from a worn-out picture that my mother had had. And I knew that scar on his cheek and his evil eye. He was big and bent and gray and old. And I looked at him and my blood ran cold. And I said, my name is Sue. How do you do? How are you gonna die? Yeah, that's what I told him. I heard him laugh and then I heard him cuss and he went for his gun to pull mine first. He stood there looking at me and I saw him smile. And he said, son, this world is rough and if a man's gonna make it, he's gotta be tough. And I know I wouldn't be there to help you along. So I give you that name and I said goodbye. I knew you'd have to get tough or die. And it's that name that helped to make you strong. Yeah. He said, now you just fought one hell of a fight And I know you hate me and you got the right to kill me now And I wouldn't blame you if you do But you ought to thank me before I die For the gravel in your guts and the spit in your eye Cause I'm the that named you Sue Pete, when you got the award, the Kennedy Award yeah. How did you feel after all those years of being red-baited, of this and that, and here is the President of the United <laughs> States, the White House, the medal around your neck. How did you feel? I have to laugh. I have to laugh. Now, I sometimes think maybe I should do what Adrienne Rich did. She refused to accept these awards, the poet, great poet. But she said, I don't want to have to go to the White House and be polite and shake the hands of somebody that I think is a liar and a thief and is killing America if he can. But we are not going to let him kill America. She refused to take an award. Yeah, but in this case, there you are. And here's this history. I'm so glad, you, personally, I'm really glad you took it because it makes a point. And the point is that people get crazy and then they stop being crazy and things come even, around. Even crazy people do good things. <laughs> well, no, I mean, as a country, we get to a place where we can say, yeah, you know, this guy is a great man. You, don't, you have a lot of trouble with taking accolades, uh, don't you? Listen, there are great people in every community of this country. Musicians and politicians are in the publicity racket. People are hired to get you publicity. You can't get votes. You can't sell tickets if you don't get publicity. So there are people hired to get you publicity. And when people get autographs, I say, do you realize there are people in the community where you live who deserve publicity, never get it? They're heroic people. They might be women whose husband had died, but they somehow managed to raise a big family of kids, and they're all good kids, and, and none of them turn out bad. That's a heroic thing. There'd be a, a man who works at some job he hates, but he knows somebody's got to do the damn job. And if he didn't have a job, what would he do? Because he wa has a family he wants to keep going, and so he keeps that job and does it decade after decade after decade, till thankfully he's retired, maybe with a very small pension. But he's a hero, in a way. Now, others are firemen. They're daily heroes. They're going to burning buildings where they may get killed. 
Policemen are daily heroes in a way, even though some policemen are stinkers. They take advantage of their power. You know how the old saying, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So some policemen are stinkers, but some are real heroes. Some men do jobs which are dangerous in the air, airplanes. Incidentally, I heard a wonderful story. Two, three days after 9-11, this was printed in the New Yorker, and I, the New Yorker often has a great stories. And they give the name of the flight and the name of the airline, I think it was American Airlines. And they're in the air, no more in New York City. And a voice comes over, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We are now on our own. And at first, I would like to congratulate you on being brave enough to fly today. The second is, as you know, it's up to us whether we arrive to Los Angeles or not. If anybody tries to take over this plane, I'm instructing you now to immediately throw something at him as hard as you can, whether it is a magazine or a pillow or your camera or a book or a cup of coffee, throw it at their head. They can't handle everything if it comes to the same instant. They'll be trying to fend it off, at which time they can be captured, and when we're on the ground, they will be taken care of. Remember, the American Constitution starts with we, the people of the United States, and we here are the people, and we will never be defeated. Isn't that wonderful? It is. Do you ever get on a plane yourself and think of what you would do in a case like that? I'd probably have a book in my hand. I'm a... I'm a terrible bookaholic. But it might have been a magazine. I, I read the airplane magazines. Sometimes they've got very good articles. But I would throw something. Might have been a glass of water. And I'd tell Toshi, throw your coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, I just want to say one thing, and I want to do it publicly, and that is that I know you're not a guy who likes to talk about generosity. You do it for other people, but you don't do it for yourself. But that first Pete Seeger tape that we used has resulted in hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, I'm so glad. For mm. WAMC. And I don't think there's any way we can ever repay you other than to just listen and to try to take some news. Well, you're repaying it. me by patiently listening to me run off the mouth. <laughs> Thank you. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray You'll never know, dear, how much I love you Please don't take my sunshine away The other night, dear, as I lay sleeping I dreamed I held